Good morning. Uh, would you uh, please pray with me? God, would you bless the reading of your word today? Give the gift of understanding it by your spirit and lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. In your name, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jim Grossman. If you don't know me, I serve as pastoral intern here. I'm about two months into a nine-month internship, and I'm happy to continue to have the opportunity to serve and preach here. Today is our uh, last sermon in Mark before we start a few Advent messages this Christmas season, after which we'll, we'll resume preaching verse by verse through Mark, as is the pattern established here at West Coasset Chapel. And after the Christmas season, Lord willing, we'll pick back up in Mark. And this is also the reason for being where we are here in the text before us today, which is Mark 6, 6 to 13. It's page 711 in the Church Bibles, if you would turn there with me. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. By way of introduction, it's good to refresh our memories. It was last week when we read that Jesus was a prophet in his own hometown without honor. We saw how the town responded to his message and preaching in the synagogue on Sabbath, and then their reaction to him after that which was to question his authority and where he got the things he was saying. As Pastor Joe said, it was uh, kind of a dig at him. He may be getting his power from the devil. Uh, as the Pharisees had early, earlier suggested, they were not acknowledging it was from God. They weren't saying it was from Satan. But they clearly were not acknowledging that Jesus was sent from God and working by God. Instead, they asked, what's this wisdom giving to, to him? I don't know where he gets his power from to do these miracles. Isn't he just a, a low-line worker, a carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? We know Joseph's not his dad. We know his brothers and sisters, and we know where he came from. And so it says they took offense at him. So by way of introduction, the context is that in a manner of speaking, Jesus leaves Nazareth, having not been welcomed or listened to, which Jesus says can happen to the disciples when he sends them out says that to them in verse 11. And so he goes on to the next town, teaching by village by village, as it were, shaking the dust off his feet as he leaves Nazareth as a prophet without honor in his own house. Now the Gospels are prescriptively different from other biblical texts. You look at New Testament letters, and most, if not all of them, are given by an apostle or apostolic authority um, to prescriptively teach uh, the church a lesson they need to know. 
There are clear instructions given and principles laid down to tell you what to do, what to believe, and how to act. Here, however, in the Gospels at this point in chapter 6, we're given a historical narrative, and we have to ask ourselves, well, what do we do with this? How do we parse this out so that it makes sense to us? And what principles are laid down that we should glean a meaning from them for our own lives? And to do this, we've got to be honest to the text. We need to be honest to the context. And we need to be honest to our context. And then, then we can make a proper application. If you would look at the outline on the back of your worship folder, you'll find the four points I've chosen for today's outline. Uh, the context of this portion of the narrative gospel history. In this uh, section of scripture, point one, first Jesus called the disciples to him. Second point, next he gave them authority. Third point, he instructed them. And final point, the disciples preached as they were sent out. If you look at the verses and read them as we just did, you'll see that's exactly what happened. Jesus called them to himself. He instructed them on how to go out. And they went out preaching and casting out demons as he had given them the authority to do. You see that there in verse 7. And so he called the 12 to him. That's the first point in outlining this narrative. He called the 12 to him, verse 7, to send them out two by two. At face value, that's fairly straightforward. I don't want to spend a lot of time belaboring it or or attempting to over-explain it. Uh, But the who, what, when, where, why, and how help help get the context. So who did he send out? Uh, The disciples. How did he send them out? Two by two. And why? The answer has practical and and theological reasons. Practically, it adds safety and travel, uh, encouragement for one another. But theologically, or or biblically, you might say, it's helpful to know Deuteronomy 17.6 and 19.15, that the testimony of only one witness is not to be trusted. Uh, You need two or three, and that's in that portion of scriptures and the laws, the legal code given by God to the Israelites. Paul also repeats this uh, in his instruction to the Corinthians in his second letter to them, chapter 13, verse 1, every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So there's some purpose and meaning besides sending them out two by two. Uh, and another question you might ask, was this calling for the purpose of sending them out just for now and temporary, or was it for forever? And the simple answer is that it was a short term send-off of the Twelve. Uh, to quote the word biblical commentary, this story does not answer the detailed what or when questions of such a mission. It simply declares that it happened. Having accompanied Jesus, heard him teach, and watched him perform mighty deeds, they're now given a part in that ministry as his authorized representatives. And this is important. Their credibility was that they had been with Jesus and that they had been called by Jesus. Uh, There's no institution that can make you a minister of the gospel. They can teach, help, and instruct, uh, but they can't make you a minister of the gospel. Only Christ can. uh, For me, I think of Bible college. You don't automatically go to Bible college and now you're magically a minister. Uh, Christ has to call you and he has to do that, that work. And personally, that's the vocational path that I'm on or that a pastor is called to. 
Um, but all Christians are called to the same work of Jesus in spreading the gospel. And in the text for the twelve, having accompanied Jesus, they are now part of the ministry as his authorized representatives. This work leads to the feeding miracle where it becomes increasingly clear uh, that despite fulfilling their calling as the twelve, their own understanding of Jesus and his mystery, ministry might be somewhat deficient. Uh, chapter 4, verse 11, uh, verse 13, and verse 41, if you, if you look at those, uh, 4.11, they were given the secret of the kingdom. 4.13, he says, Jesus asks them, how do you not understand it? Uh, verse 41, after the storm, they ask, who is this? And in 6.52, they uh, <clears throat> had not understood, for their hearts were hardened. So they may not completely get the whole picture yet. And in fact, the story of John the Baptist, death that interrupts this successful mission scene, anticipates at least part of the missing element of their understanding of Jesus. This element, the suffering son of man, becomes the main motif in Jesus' instructions for his disciples. We'll see that in the coming chapters, um, 8 through about 11. But at this moment, they're being called to Jesus for the purpose of being sent out. Earlier on in this gospel narrative in Mark 1, Jesus calls four of them, saying he'll make them fishers of men. And before this calling that we have before us in chapter 6, more broadly in Mark 3, 13 to 16, Jesus called the 12 to him as well. It says that Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. And these are the 12 he appointed, and you can read their names there. This calling in chapter 3 tasked them with the same duties as in chapter 6, except that this time now they're sent out two by two. And instead of just receiving the title apostle, which apostle literally means uh, sent one, they are now sent out. Not that they might do these things as it says in chapter 3, but that they actually do them as Jesus gives them the authority to do in chapter 6. They're being called to do something they've never done before. They're being called to cast out demons, and they're being called to preach repentance. These are not light tasks to be called to, you could say that another way. They're not tasks that they could do on their own. So point two, verse seven. After calling them, he gave them authority over evil spirits. They needed Jesus' authority to do these things. And so when Jesus is calling of them, he commissioned them with tasks to do by his power and authority that he had given them to do. They were being called to do what Jesus did, and Jesus gave them authority to do it. So why focus on that? Why repeat that? Why does it matter that he was the one that gave them authority to do this? It uh, seems strange in one way, because our context, we don't see a lot of uh, demons being visibly cast out. Um, Pastor Joe was telling me that this is an important question to answer, because wherever there's a gospel push or thrust forward, the kingdom of darkness pushes back hard. It's not that the devil or as minions mind when people are getting along. It's when we're getting along and wanting to share the gospel that they mind. It's not that the devil or his minions mind when people are giving money to the church for its own good. It's when we are giving money to the church to advance the gospel that the powers of hell go crazy. 
and start gathering their forces to fight against it. It's that they know the truth of 1 John 3.8, which tells us that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Uh, and so Joe reminded me that we need to take a certain softness out of the gospel equation because it's an intense battle and the authority was given to them for this reason. They're being called to do what Jesus did, to cast out demons and usher in the kingdom of God, which was so very near, which was at hand. Eternity is hanging in the balance. The lives and eternal destinations of people were in the balance, so it wasn't just a a training mission. They were being called to do what Jesus did, to preach that people should repent. And you can begin to see the principle for us here as Christians called by God and commissioned by Jesus that those God calls, he commissions. And so you ask, is there some kind of application for us here? We're not the 12 apostles. But we are sent ones, and we are clearly called in the Bible to go in his power and authority to proclaim and preach the same thing to the world around us. The Great Commission is an easy spot to look, and it's there, but it is also uh, the instruction of the New Testament throughout, of which a few you might be familiar with, First Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks to give a reason for the hope that you have. Second Timothy 4.2 says to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Acts uh, 8.4, speaking of the Christians, they were uh, those who were scattered, went everywhere preaching the word. Uh, that word preaching in Greek, uh, Joe told me, has the effect of uh, gossiping. So they went um, gossiping the gospel. And the disciples, so that's what we're to do. And the disciples in this passage were called by Jesus to do the work of God, and so are we. So point three, following along with the text and outline, he, Jesus, instructed him. Verse eight, these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. Again, that's fairly straightforward in in what happened. Jesus basically told them not to bring anything for traveling they might need. In other words, don't bring any clutter. The Message Bible says it like this. Don't think you need a lot of extra equipment for this. You are the equipment. No special appeals for funds. Keep it simple. And no luxury inns. Get a modest place and be content there until you relieve. They were sent on a journey. Now, where each six of the two sets went and what six directions they went, again, we're not specifically told this, but we do know what we need to. They were sent with standals and a staff. So they're walking, they're journeying from town to town. Have you ever walked from your house in Deer River or Cohasset or Grand Rapids or Coleraine to the church here? or walked from Deer River to Cohasset, or from Cohasset to Grand Rapids, or, or from Deer River to Coleraine. That would be a long enough journey in and of itself. Uh, to give you an idea of, of distances for the context for their time period, uh, they were, had been around the Sea of Galilee. It's 64 square miles. I don't know if you've been to Lake uh, Winnebagosh, but it's close. It's um, 88 square miles, so close to the same size. 
next time you take a look at a, at a Minnesota map, take a look at Lake Winnie and all the surrounding towns and think about walking to each one of them. And uh, don't bring any food with you when you do that. Also, no bag. Uh, the bag mentioned is a beggar's bag, something you could have filled with supplies and asked for help in your travel. So don't bring a handkerchief around a stick and collect things as you go. You're not a tourist, you're an evangelist, and you have a mission. Also, don't bring any money in your belt. So no cash and no wallet, don't bring them. Don't even bring a change of clothes. And now stop at each place and stay there a few days. Preach that people should repent. The point in this short-term send-off uh, is that you won't need any extra equipment for this. You, you are the equipment. You'll be provided for, don't worry. The principle behind it was of need and dependence on God and trust in Jesus' instruction to them. Uh, Hudson Taylor was a, a missionary to China for 50 years, and he, he summed it up pretty well this way. God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. And now in this principle of need and dependence, Jesus is sending them out with basically nothing besides the clothes on their back and the shoes on their feet. Uh, it's important to note he's, he's not calling them to some form of lifelong religious asceticism. Asceticism is a lifestyle characterized by abs, abstinence from sensual pleasures, often for the purpose of spiritual goals. Historically, it's been res, observed in many religious traditions, including Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, and, and Judaism. Basically, it's a self-denial of, of pleasures or trappings of this world for the purpose of focusing on greater things. And its resulting forms of self and religious discipline, it can range from sleeping on floors or caves, uh, eating simple minimal amounts of food to the more intense and, and gross practices that go much further and uh, involves body mortification, punishing one's own flesh, and habitual self-infliction of pain, such as sleeping on a bed of nails to minimize the world and the self in order to attempt to reach a higher state of worship or spirituality. And that never works. Paul says, uh, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use and are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. We, we shouldn't let ourselves be, be tricked into thinking that some sort of minimalistic lifestyle or level of frugality is much other than anything of the pattern of the world. Um, pinching pennies to feel safe, that has an appearance of wisdom, but it can, um, Paul says, it can really just be self-imposed worship and false humility. and has very little value in, in restraining yourself at all. It's, it's far too easy to live um, in our world, to opt out of society, to live as a, a minimalist than it is to actually try and live in the world and not be of the world. It can be hard for us to be able to enjoy something expensive that, that could be right. Uh, for an example like an offering of perfume dumped out and lavished over feet. Our knee-jerk reaction to lavish things uh, can be, hey, uh, that could have been used 
more wisely. I mean, we could have used that better and maybe fed the poor. And this is not what Jesus was calling the disciples to here. He was not calling them to some lifelong form of minimalism that exists in religious form to deny any sort of basic needs to somehow elevate spirituality. Not even to tell the disciples to live frugal or cheap. No, what Jesus is telling them here is not that you need to painfully avoid and despise your basic needs or just minimally meet them, but rather don't worry about your basic needs, that he will have them covered and covered very well to full measure. He won't just minimally meet your needs. He can make your cup run over. Don't worry, you'll have it better than the birds of the air have it and prettier than the lilies of the field in all their splendor. Jesus is not going to tell them something different here than he already has. He won't contradict himself. In Matthew 6, the principle is explained by Jesus really well. It's not a denial of needs, and it's not a denial of necessities. And it's certainly not meant to cause a form of minimalism that has to rule every facet of your life. It's about provision from God and looking to him first. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry. Don't, well, don't worry about what? Don't worry about your life and the provisions you need, about your life, what you'll eat or drink, about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you add a single hour to your life by worrying? He's saying, don't, don't worry, your heavenly Father will provide. That's different from don't buy or eat only the cheapest foods. He's not saying you've got to live off of ramen in some small shack. He's saying, don't worry, I'll provide the necessities of life. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The pagans run after all these things. Don't run after these things. He's descending his disciples from town to town and saying, don't trade up. Stay in the first house the whole time. Don't move to a nicer one. Don't run after these things. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be given to you as well. The broad principle is the same, that God will provide. And uh, as an aside, personally, that's a path that I'm on. Uh, I was told that uh, if you're going to apply for this internship, you're going to have to have faith to do that, and then you'll have to have faith to interview. And then after that, a decision will be made, and then you'll have to have faith to accept it if it is offered then it will take faith to continue in it. And uh, once your internship is all done, you'll have to have faith that God has a plan or place to use you in this way after it. And and I'm grateful that you've all been making this a possibility um, and that God is using it to benefit my faith and the church and the body of Christ in in a possible future congregation. Uh, God always works in the same way. Uh, His character is always the same, and and he builds up and cares for those Uh, who are his own. And so back to the message, the broad principle is the same. God will provide. The principle in Mark on this short-term local mission is is not to bog yourself down with the extras. Uh, You're the equipment. You go and preach repentance. Why? For your own comfort or your own gain? There were those who preached for their own personal gain in the past, and Paul spoke to that. He said if, if they preached for their own personal gain, at least Christ was preached. But those who did it, did it out of selfish ambition. You can look that up in in Philippians 1. And Jesus is saying here in verse 10, don't even give the appearance of that. If you find a nicer place 
uh, in the town that you're preaching for a few days, don't take it. Don't, don't preach for your gain. Don't even look like you're preaching for your gain. You're supposed to go and preach repentance. Why? Not for your gain and, and not even for your comfort in the task of it. You go and preach that people should repent. And why? For the forgiveness of sins. That's why. To bring people to God, to reconcile them with the Heavenly Father. And so the Son is telling Jesus, the Son is telling them, I've come to reconcile men to God. John pointed to it. I preach it. Now you go as an extension of me and do the same. And while those are good instructions, Jesus, but what if they don't receive us? The disciples might have been asking this, or at least had it on their minds. What about the town's response? Basically, what if in their humanity they're like Nazareth and they don't receive us or believe us? Like Nazareth didn't welcome or listen to you. Then Jesus more or less says to do the same thing he did. See that at the end of verse 6, Jesus went around teaching from village to village. So basically Jesus tells them to do the same thing and to go to the next place shaking the dust off their feet. It's, it's not hard to believe that people wouldn't accept the message. That's the human condition. We think we don't need God. That's the first sin. I, I can determine for myself what's right and wrong. I don't need someone to tell me that. Uh, look, I, I know right and wrong, and if I were to eat of this fruit and know good and evil, I would be like God, and, and that's the decision I'm making. I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to rule my own life. I'm going to make my own decisions. And I already know that I can determine for myself what's right and wrong. Sort of a, you can believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe. You see, I can determine these things for myself. I don't need someone telling me I should repent. I don't need to be told to change. I don't need to repent, and I don't need God. And that's really not that different from our world today. Uh, you can believe what I want to believe, and, and I'll believe what I want to believe. There's no re- really no regard for truth and what is actually right in, a, in our postmodern culture, they, they like to call what is wrong right, and they like to call what is right wrong. It's coming down these days to the very words that we use. I want you to use my words to describe me. You know, I don't identify as that. It would be wrong for you to tell me something right. And they take wrong ways of living, and, and they try to call them right, and try to force us and compel us to say that their wrong way is right, and so it's really not hard to believe that people wouldn't accept the message. So what do we do? Uh, Do we keep quiet? Do we capitulate to that? Do we agree with you believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe and, well, that's okay? Or are we obedient enough to tell the truth? Do we proclaim and preach with boldness and authority? They were amazed at Jesus for preaching this way, not as one of the teachers of this day. And Jesus gives those he calls his very own authority and his very message. We really don't have something new. This isn't an invention of historical Christianity. You can go back to Jonah, and the message of God was the same. Repent or be overturned. Flip back farther, go to Cain, and what did God tell him? Look, Cain, if you did what is right, wouldn't you be accepted? Why this tantrum? Why the sulking? If you do well, won't you be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin is lying in wait for you, ready to pounce. It's out to get you. You've got to master it. You must turn 
from sin. It's not an invention of historical Christianity. God preached it to Cain, and God preached it to Nineveh through Jonah, to his enemies. The capital city of the Assyrians was Nineveh, who carried the Israelites into captivity, and the message for them was repent or be overturned. And Nineveh did repent, and God relented. He didn't destroy them, and he had mercy on his enemies. And Jesus did the same thing. While we were yet sinners, still his enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus came preaching the same message. This message of repentance comes straight from Jesus with his power and authority, and we are his authorized representatives. So final point, verse 12. They went out and preached that people should repent. The interpreter's Bible says it like this. Up to this point, Jesus' predominant word was come. Now another verb is added, go. The great, first great word in every realm of life is always come. The command freely give is futile unless there has been the indispensable preliminarily freely you have received. Yet life is never fulfilled until it hears and responds to the second verb, go. That word go marks a watershed too in the life of the disciple when the outthrust of faith and service follows the incoming into a great experience of truth. The question arises for each of us. Are we in the apostolic succession, not in any narrowly ecclesiastical sense, but in the deeper sense of being among those sent, as ours a commissioned life in which the master's word go has put into motion? Are we in the parade or merely on the reviewing stand? The word marks a watershed also in the life of a church. Unless a church reaches out, it passes out. That is history. It is also prophecy. I like that quote. And then the following observation that follows it, that we should note that in sending out his disciples to preach, Jesus is looking to arouse the nation. You can see that there in verses 13 and and 14. The next section on John the Baptist shows some of this arousal. Herod fears. Some groups were saying it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others said it was Elijah. Others said he was a prophet like that of long ago. It can't be coincidence that in the order of the text here, to send out his disciples in the land to preach his message and act on Jesus' authority, that the next two verses, verse 13, they did these wonders, and verse 14, for Jesus' name had become well-known. The context is interesting that after they obeyed and preached, working by his authority and with Jesus' message, that then Jesus' name became well-known. Something we uh, pray for here uh, at this church is the honor of Christ's name in the church and in the world. It's a good prayer, and we should keep on praying it. But we should also be doing it. What does James say about using words or or well-wishing and cause? James 2, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. So we can pray for the honor of Christ's name around us, and we can have faith that God will do this, but what good will we do the cause if we don't accompany such a prayer with actions? You're smart and reasoning people. You can work that one out on your own.
those whom Jesus sends should follow the same sent and went formula. Verse 7, they were sent. Verse 12, they went. It brings to mind an example. If when we are sent and don't go, what can we expect? We can't be like Jonah, who when sent went the other way, or like others who heard and hardened their hearts and just plain old didn't listen. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Manasseh and Meribah, says the scriptures in Psalms 95.8 and Hebrews 3.7, both referencing Exodus 17.7 and Deuteronomy 33.8, all coming from the account in Numbers 20, when in the wilderness the Israelites hardened their hearts in rebelling against God. They tested or tried God with their lack of faith, and that is why they didn't enter the promised land for 40 years. This was when Moses said, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? So this warning to not be rebels, to not harden our hearts. What happened in Numbers, it was referenced in Deuteronomy and Exodus and the Psalms and the New Testament book of Hebrews. And it rings so clear. And God reminds us of this in his own word over and over these five times all throughout Scripture. So this is a big deal. You can't enter the promised land, in unbelief. And the Bible ascribes this voice, this message, to the Holy Spirit, Hebrews 3, 7. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his heart, hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. Last time when I preached, I was telling you about a friend who, you know, I'd like a sign. Well, even those who saw signs for even 40 years still lacked faith. Verse 10 in Hebrews 3. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So because the Holy Spirit says this, the author of Hebrews says in the next verse, after quoting this passage, See to it then, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And this is man as man. Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardening of their hearts. So what is our response to man as man when we go out and preach? We can be amazed at their lack of faith. We can shake the dust off our feet as a testimony against them. We do know that he who has the Son of God has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Shaking the dust off their feet was really more of an acknowledgement the town had testified against themselves, that people testify against themselves when they reject the message of Jesus, that they should repent. So we should know that when we share this message, that that is a possibility. But if you would turn the page... And look quickly at verses 30 to 37 before I close. That after this mission, the disciples reported back to Jesus to tell him all they had done. And Jesus told them to come again, but this time to a quiet place to get some rest. So they went to a solitary place. The principle of calling and receiving an authority and instructions should spur us on to do God's work. 
But don't think that he also doesn't call us into quiet times of rest either. Wherever you're at today in your walk with Christ, I hope you can be encouraged to do the work of the gospel, convicted if you need to be, but hopefully encouraged by the good example of the disciples. And if he is sending you on a mission, that you can do it. You don't need any extra equipment. And in the broad sense that he has called us all to make disciples, I hope you can be encouraged to do the work of the Lord as the Holy Spirit guides you in your daily walk with him as you go about in the world. And if you have a need and Jesus is telling you to come, rest with me in a quiet place, I hope you can. But you should also know that rest with him is for being refilled. Rest with him is for being refilled because we can get carried away with rest, especially in our society. So we should remember and know that verse 33 to 37 in your Bibles follows verses 31 and 32, that Jesus had compassion on the lost people who are sheep without a shepherd, and he may still tell you in times of rest, verse 37 of chapter 6, you give them something to eat. We should report back, and though after reporting, there may be a measure of rest, there may also be another mission calling us to have compassion on sheep without a shepherd. Will you pray with me? Our Father God, who art in heaven, we pray and ask that you would soften our hearts to your words. Make us quicken for salvation that those who don't have your salvation can receive it. And we thank you that those who do have your salvation have been raised up together and you have made us sit together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, as your word says in Ephesians 2. We thank you and praise you, God, for this. We ask that you would apply the truth of the principles of your word to our lives and make us strong for every work that you have prepared beforehand for us to do. We ask that you would forgive us our sins and our frailties. I ask that our prayer would always be of one of humility, like that of your people in Second Chronicles 20. Lord, we are weak and we are powerless and we don't know what to do. Answer our prayer when we come not knowing what to do and provide us with an answer. Give us your grace and mercy as well as your power and authority that when we go out, We may go out with boldness as we proclaim a message of repentance, preaching that people should repent. Give us your compassion and care for your lost sheep, that we would treat people the way you would, with kindness as we share your truth and love, giving ourselves up for them as you did for us. Keep us from temptation and deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom and power and glory forever and ever. Amen.